Let's get right into it. Last week we started in the qualifications of elders, and I was so long-winded last week that we had to just stop right in the middle. So we made it through kind of half of the qualifications of elders, and today we're going to finish up on the qualifications of elders. So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We're working through the New Testament books with our kids, trying to help them memorize them. And so I'm, I'm right now, I'm thinking in my head, where is Titus at? Okay, it's First uh, and 2 Thessalonians, First and 2 Timothy, Titus. Great. Titus chapter 1 here. We're going to go ahead and just read the qualifications again. Start in verse 5. We're going to read through verse 9. Let's do that together. Here we go. Verse 5. This is what God's Word says. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable. A lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Here in this passage, Titus is, Paul is helping Titus know how to put what remained into order. Verse 5, it's what he's doing putting what remained into order. And he's doing that by appointing elders. That's the task given to him. So a reasonable question is, how do elders help the church have order? If he's putting what remained into order, how does that work? Well, we talked about last week, we'll review here, some of the roles of pastors, what elders should be doing is that they should be preaching, they should be praying, they should be providing oversight, protecting doctrine, equipping saints and setting the example. This is a pretty good list of what we should expect from pastors. They should be doing all of these things as a way to help set the church in order. Without pastors, without elders, without a group who has been appointed for these tasks, there's chaos in the church. There's chaos in the life of the church. So to set the church in one direction as under shepherds, under the chief shepherd, the task of a pastor is to shepherd the congregation towards godliness. By Christ-like servant leadership, pastors are called to lead the body of believers into enjoying and treasuring Christ above all things. It's a serious task. When we look at what that means, that's a serious task. One that God takes seriously. So seriously that he gave the church instructions for choosing pastors, a little bit of the job description, a little bit of the expectation of who should be in that position. It might be somewhat surprising then to find that the instructions for choosing pastors are a set of qualifications that should be common to all believers. That really what we're seeing, and even as Nolan was praying through, that the, the tasks we're seeing here are, are the goals, the, the type of person is what we should expect of everyone who follows after Christ. There's nothing incredibly special about the qualifications of an elder other than just 
faithfulness to following Jesus. God calls him to love and lead his wife and children, which if we're saying what is the one thing that might be a little bit different here, there's, there is a, a gender qualification on the office of pastor that he does call husbands of one wives. And that's divisive in big church, like global church. It's not divisive in those who hold the Bible up as highest authority that we look at First uh, Timothy 2, we look at 1 Corinthians 14, and in conjunction with even here and in 1 Timothy 3 of the qualifications, that there is a gender qualification, that God has called men to this office. But other, other than that, even in that call, wives are called to love their husbands, and wives are called to, uh, to love their children and, and to lead their children towards Christ. But other than that, we see these, these qualifications for everyone. He calls the pastor, the elder, not to be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. This is, this is what we ask of, of every believer who's following after Jesus. I think most of us can agree that these aren't crazy things to ask of a follower of Christ. The task of being, elder, of being an elder is serious, but what we should see from this text is that it's also serious to follow Christ. The task of following Christ is serious. That we're, we're not called to some empty life. We're called to a serious, full life of expectation and joy as we follow after Jesus. As we look at these expectations of pastors, it's worth remembering that none of us are going to stand before the Father someday and in judgment say, Well, God, it was okay that I did all this stuff, I wasn't a pastor. Like that, that's not going to be an excuse. So as we look at these qualifications of pastors, we're not setting up some holy superheroes. We're saying, what is the expectation of every believer as they follow after, after Christ? Growing up, I, I remember not wanting to be a pastor. Now, God obviously changed that in my life and changed my desires. But, but here's the reason why I remember feeling that way growing up is that I watched as my dad, who was a pastor, is a pastor, labored in loving people and discipling people. And it wasn't like always straight comments, but sometimes you could hear the subtle things of, well, yeah, but Rodney is supposed to love Jesus, or Rodney is supposed to have this type of prayer life, or Rodney is supposed to read, he's a pastor, he's supposed to read the Bible, he's supposed to not cuss, he's a pastor. And there was almost a dismissal of the life he led for Christ because of his role as pastor. I, I, think that's, I think that's understandable in a culture who desires to rebel against holiness that God's called them to. <laughs> that when we see people following after Christ, we look for reasons why we don't have to be like that. Well, he's a pastor, so not me. Well, of course he studies a Bible. Of course he doesn't curse. Of course he, he prays. I would say, no, as a child, I remember looking at my dad and saying, there's a guy who loves Jesus and is doing those things because he loves Jesus. It's it's out of a treasure that he follows after Jesus in this way, not because he's fulfilling an office or getting paid, not because he's a pastor. And church, I'm not perfect by any means, but I want you to know that my Bible study, my prayer, my following after Jesus Christ is in no way dependent on my role as a pastor. I want you to know that, that the reason that I love 
to, to shepherd and to teach and to come alongside and to disciple is because I love Jesus. And praise God that he's given some of us to, to take this role, that full-time we can love on each other that way. But every one of us, every one of you are called to disciple and to discipleship because you love Jesus. That's true for every believer. And yes, we need more pastors. We need more godly men to pastor the church well. But we need more godly Christians living after Christ, living in in pursuit of Christ, so that people can point and say, no, look at Jason. He's not a pastor, but he's following after Christ. Sorry to single you out. He's following after Christ. We need to be able to point at people in all types of jobs and industries and say, there's no excuse. Follow after Christ. He's, he's worth it. He's worth it. If you hear the qualifications of pastor and dismiss these instructions as for someone else, you're missing the plot. Pastors aren't better or more than the average Christian. Pastors are the average Christian. Because our faith isn't based on the perfection and achievement of any pastor. Our faith in our church is based solely on the perfection and achievement of Jesus Christ. So we all strive to follow hard after him, whether we're a pastor or not. And Paul lays out these qualifications here in Titus 1, and again, a very similar set over in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He lays out these qualifications to make sure that pastors are the type of Christian that is serious about following after Jesus. Here's, who, here's what a pastor looks like. It looks like a Christian who loves following after Jesus. Last week, we looked at verses 5 through 7. So today, let's, let's continue on. We've already read through the whole thing, but, but verse 7 there, just to kind of to reapproach. Verse 6 talks about loving his wife and kids, leading well. Verse 7 then says, again, A pastor is God's steward. He must be above reproach. And then we get things that an elder should not be. He must not be. We get that list. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And then verse 8 transitions. And instead of a bunch of nots, it's a bunch of things the pastor should be. What should an elder be? And here's where we are. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Here we see the pastor's discipline. In verse 8, we see the pastor's discipline. If verse 8, verse 7 tells us what he shouldn't be, verse 8 is saying, look, a pastor should be these things. And as I was trying to think, what is, is, do we have a theme for this list? I, I, don't, I don't know that disciplined isn't a really good theme for this list. As we're following after Jesus, what does it look like to follow after Jesus. I know disciplined is in the list, but still, you need discipline to follow the rest of what this list is. The problem is that discipline can have a really negative connotation. When we think of discipline, none of us enjoy discipline. None of us want discipline. None of us put ourselves in a situation where we need or think we will have discipline. But, But biblically, what discipline is calling for here is not just like a parent giving their kid a consequence. It's, it's putting ourselves in a place where we work to follow after Christ. 
I don't know if, if I wanted to make this list appealing to you, it would have been better to come with a theme like, hey, here, this is fun or dynamic or influential. Here's what a pa- pastor should be. But I think biblically disciplined is a, is a good point here of what it means to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, and holy. When God tells us what he wants from those he's called to shepherd his church, he tells us about a disciplined life. In Paul's letter to another young pastor, you're going to hear it a lot because of these pastoral epistles. There's lots of similarities. But in his letter to Timothy, who's in similar place, he says, he says this in, in chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. He says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. You see, see that call to discipline there? Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We should have some sweat equity in our godliness. We should have some toiling and striving for the sake of godliness in our lives, that we're working towards Christ-likeness. What's true for us is that living for Christ doesn't come naturally. What comes naturally for us is sin and separation and destruction and chaos. Sin comes naturally. And so, yeah, we look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17 that says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That, that's, that's right. And that's, we should embrace that promise of being a new creation as we fight the sin of this world and the sin in ourselves that still tries to rear up. I mean, Ephesians 4, 24 tells us for this new self to put the new self on. There's some work in following after Christ. In Christ's redemption for us, there is no work. But in our following and pursuit of Christ in our salvation, after we've been saved, we put on this new self. Romans 6 tells us to walk in this new life. That There, there is work for us to do as we follow after Christ. To enjoy the free gift of the Holy Spirit, we, and embrace this new life, we are called to a disciplined life. God commands us to train ourselves in godliness because it, is, because it is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Think about it then. What, what does training, what does discipline in the Christian life look like? What, what does it look like? What does training look like in athletics? I mean, if an athlete eats a salad one day a week, is he going to be trained? No, obviously, you need a lot more than one salad a week to feel like you're going to be fit and athletic. So, in the same way, coming to church to become godly might be like eating a salad one day a week, thinking that you're going to get fit. It's good, you should do it, eat your salads, but there's work to put in. There's discipline involved, there's training involved. So, church, Christians, we devote ourselves to reading and praying and gathering together, not because of tradition and because it's expected of us and because Grandma told us to, is because we love Jesus and we want Him more than anything. 
And so we're willing to train ourselves, to discipline ourselves towards godliness. And yes, pastors, we need to set the example. Pastors are called to set the example of devoting ourselves and disciplining ourselves towards godliness. And so we get this list from from Paul here in Titus of what we should specifically be disciplining ourselves in. And one is hospitality. Our our hospitality team, you might walk walk in and see guys and girls in blue shirts saying hey to you, and the front of it says hospitality. And I'm trying to remember exactly what we said, but I think it's strangers becoming family. Yeah, nailed it. All right. Strangers becoming family. And I love that definition of hospitality is that it's taking someone who is a stranger on day one and moving along the line of relationship until someone who is completely unknown becomes someone who feels almost completely known. That they know your strengths and weaknesses, that you know theirs. And he's called pastors to be hospitable, to make to be someone who's interested in seeing strangers become family. Isn't this so much a picture of the gospel? That what has God done to us except shown us great hospitality, that he has taken us who did not know him, who rejected him, and he has said, I want you to be my family. He has made us his children through the work of Christ. So hospitality is more than just saying hello. And it's even more than doing something as extravagant as opening your home and cooking meals It's not easy to be hospitable. I would say it's easy to be friends with friends. I mean, that's that's all of our inclination, is to gather with those we already know. And the heart of someone who is hospitable says, I want to know the people who are unknown. I want to be close with those who are not close. So pastors are called to set the example of that, but church, you are too. That we should be setting the example of saying, I want to know you. He's called to hospitality. He's called to be a lover of good. A lover of good, I think, is, it's interesting to think about what is, what is the opposite of lover of good? A hater of bad. And, and it's actually helpful to, to compare that. That we're called to be lovers of good, not just haters of bad. And maybe this is a little cliche in our culture, but we want to be known for what we love, not just for what we hate. Don't you as a church want to be known for how much you love Jesus? And how often does the church have a reputation for only the things that we hate? For only the things that we dislike? And some of that, I mean, what, you can talk about narratives all day long. But narratives are built a lot of times on, on at least things that are partially true. And I, I hope for us that it would be wholly true. That we would be known for our love for Christ. Yes, do we hate and reject sin? Yes, we do. We, we pray for that. We pray that you might know the sin in your life and repent. Uh, Nolan was praying for that. I, I think if we took like a survey of what words we use the most as a church, I, I hope that repentance would be one of those words that we use a lot. I think joy would be another one. I think it'd be an interesting list to compile. But I hope repentance is one of them because sin gets in the way of the way we love Jesus. It gets in the way of our relationship with Christ. If you want to enjoy the spirit that dwells in you, sin will wreck that desire. Sin will make you desire everything but Christ. And so, yes, we hate sin. But the reason we hate sin is because we love Christ. And to get those mixed up is to forget your love. So pastors are called to be lover of good. We should be lovers of good, pastors and church. We should be known by what we love. And what is good? 
what is good starts with Christ. We look to Christ first to know what is good. And then we look to his word. His word helps us know what is good. And to love good is to pursue goodness and righteousness and loveliness. That's what we should be about, church. A lover of good. And think about, we know men and women who are not just haters of bad, but are lovers of bad. Who are lovers of things less than good. Church, let's set the example of loving what is good and rejecting what is not. Of setting aside the things that are not. Yes, we set aside the things that are far from God. We set aside sin. We hate sin. We kill sin, as John Owen says. And we're known for what we love. We're known for Jesus. Pastors are also called to be self-controlled. And, yeah, self-control is kind of a definition in itself, that you can control yourself, right? That's what we're called to, that we can control our thoughts and our actions and even our words. I think reading through James, it's a pretty clear indication that if you want to know how you're doing with your self-control, think about your words. Your words are a great indication of how you are with self-control. So how are you doing with self-control? Are you able to, to think and then act? Or are you always the person who is just acting and there is no control over yourself? It's really difficult to honor God when all you do is let your flesh motivations drive every action. But to have self-control is to say, I'm going to give priority to what God wants in my life first. That's the goal of self-control is to say, I'll give God the authority over this thought. I'll give God the authority over this action. I'll give God the authority over this feeling. That's self-control. So many times where we lack self-control is just being able to change our mind, isn't it? That if we could just change our mind and put perspective on the situation we're in, that we could stop and we could change and honor Christ. But how many times, instead of giving authority to Christ, we give authority to what feels good. We give authority to our power. We give authority to to ourselves instead. And so self-control, really biblically, is really about giving control back to God in every situation. We are called to self-control, to be upright. Upright is to be blameless in how we deal with others. That here, if you look at self-controlled, it's really our, our relationship with ourself. Can we control ourself? But then upright is really our relationship with others. How do people know you? How do, how do people think of us? Do they think of us as uh, above reproach, as blameless? Or do they think of us as underhanded, willing to do whatever it takes to get our way? We should be the upright. We should be the ones following after Jesus in everything, even when it causes us harm. Even when doing what is right sets us back, we do what is right because we are upright, because we are following after Christ. We're called to be self-controlled, upright, and we're also called to be holy. So if self-control is how we relate to ourselves and being upright is how we relate and deal with others, then holiness is how we relate to God. That God has called us to pursue him, to love him, it's, it's about how we enjoy God. Our holiness is our intimacy with God. It's our rejection of sin and our love of God. So if you're asking, am I, am I someone who could call myself holy? Because none of us are 
good, right? We, we learned that none of us are perfectly holy. So how do we, how do we judge ourselves in this? If, if I'm like, am I qualified here? Would I be qualified? Am I matching these, these qualifications, these expectations? I think a good question is, do I enjoy God's presence? Do I enjoy God's presence? That's a question of holiness. A person who is holy is going to enjoy God's presence because what sets God apart, his holiness, is his nature unto himself, that he is three in one and that he enjoys himself. Do we enjoy God's presence? And then another good question that connects back to lover of good is, do I hate sin because I love God? How do we answer those questions? Do I hate sin because I, I love God? Or do I, do I relish some sin? Is there some sin that, yeah, I'll give everything else, but I'm going to hold on to this one because it, it's something I like. I, like. I don't know that I can get away without the little lies I tell at work. So I'm, I'm going to hold on to those, everything else I can give to God. I, I don't know if I can give to God these these pills that I've been taking for so long that I haven't been prescribed to me because I like those, but I'll give everything else to God. I wonder how often we're holding on to things because we actually don't love God. Instead, we love our sin. So a question for your holiness would be, do you enjoy God's presence? And a part of that would be, do I hate sin because I love God? So in all those things, we're called to be disciplined, especially elders, especially pastors, as they're setting the example. Are we able and willing to train ourselves for godliness? Are we disciplined? It's the kind of person described in all of verses 6 through 8. And that type of person that meets the qualifications of verses 6 through 8 is also the kind of person that can obey verse 9. So when you look down in Titus 1 verse 9, it says... He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So here we see the pastor's doctrine. So we've seen the pastor's discipline and here we see the pastor's doctrine. Who is qualified to be a pastor of the church? Those who are disciplined in all of these ways and those who have sound doctrine and hold firm to it. He must hold firm to the word. He must hold firm to the word. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us why. Why should we hold firm to this word? Why does holding firm matter? Why does doctrine matter? Because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, So here... We're getting called, the pastor is called, and not just the pastor, but the church is called to love the word because it is profitable. It's profitable for all these things so that we can be equipped for every good work. Good works that God has made us for. He prepared in advance that we would do these good works. So he tells us in 2 Timothy 3, this about scripture. And he also tells us that people are going to get tired of this. People aren't going to want scripture to do this. People don't want scripture to to reprove and to correct and to train in righteousness. People want scripture to affirm and confirm. Hey, here's what I'm feeling. Can't you give me a verse that tells me yes to that feeling? That's what we want. Isn't that what we want? That, that I can come to scripture with an idea and find a way to defend it? We're seeing that rampant right now. 
We saw it in 2 Timothy 4. Paul knew it was coming. God knew it was coming. Look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. So he just said this about Scripture. And now, 2 Timothy 4 says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I love the imagery there. It's, it's almost like bobbleheads on a shelf. Like, here's my guy. He's going to tell me what I want to know. Like we collect, we accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. It breaks my heart to read 2 Timothy 4 because isn't that today? Isn't he warning us of the present age? To some degree, that would have been true in his time. But the language makes it clear that God knew today was coming too. We're living in this. And and it should burden us that there are people in our midst turning away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. Think about, there's almost a euphemism there of wandering off into myths. It's, it, I mean, it's almost euphemistic of wandering off into hell, isn't it? That these things that are not true, that have no hope of eternal life, grab us and don't let us go. We just wander off into them, like wandering off a cliff. Church, we need to be the lighthouse, the city on a hill shining, saying, come back to truth. Listen, don't wander off. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. People will not like the light. Do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Church, we must appoint elders who are able to stand against the present age. That has always been true. The present age has always been full of evil and deception until Christ returns. We shouldn't be surprised when even church goers start to want what's unbiblical. So we should guard against racism in all its forms. We should guard against the love of money. We should guard against unhealthy sexuality in all its forms. We should guard against idols in all their forms. In church, the only sufficient guard against these things and the only sufficient foundation for what is good is God's word. There's nothing else that will suffice for us to be able to stand firm, to hold fast, to hold firm to the trustworthy word, except the word itself. God has given it to us to hold firm to. In Acts, when Paul was saying goodbye to the church in Ephesus, he told the elders, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Look at that description. It's it's not soft. It's not a gentle overtaking. It is fierce wolves coming in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 
Church, be on guard. Men will be appointed elders who will twist the word to draw away disciples after them. It was true then, it's true now. So he told them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. God takes the role of elder seriously. Takes the role of overseer seriously because he obtained the church with his own blood. It was not a cheap thing for God to buy for himself a people. He laid down his life for us so that we could be his people. It's why we care about elders because Jesus cared enough to die for us. And Jesus said, this which I have purchased with my blood, I desire to be put in order and protected and grown through the shepherding of godly men. Jesus laid his life down to claim for himself a people. And it's true, church, that I was enslaved to sin and needed a savior. And so were you. And maybe so are you. Maybe so are you enslaved to sin and needing a savior. You might be listening right now, considering the sin that enslaves you, wondering how will I ever be set free? The Bible says, call in the name of the Lord. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. And we know this about the truth, that the truth sets you free. But the only way to freedom from sin and freedom in Christ to enjoy his beauty and his love and his goodness forever is by crying out to him, asking for salvation, knowing that he is the only one who can save because of his perfect life, the life he lived that you could not live because you are a sinner, the death he died, the death you deserved, the death you were condemned to, he died for you. And he rose again to break sin's curse so that you could be with him forever. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Confess with your mouth this Jesus as Lord and you will be saved. Why not today? We're teaching about the qualifications of elders. And I hope that in every qualification we're seeing that ultimately all of that pushes back to God's love for his people and his own beauty. How good our God is. That's, that's, that's the essential element of everything we're talking about here is that God is good and that God loves you and God wants you to be a part of his family. He wants his family to know and enjoy him. Do you know and enjoy Christ? The office of elder is an important task because we need faithful men making more faithful men making more faithful men. We're going to see in the next chapter that we need more faithful women, making more faithful women, making more faithful women. This is how the church of God is cared for. This is discipleship. I'm thankful that at Provision Church we have a group of qualified elders, men who fit this description in Titus, who care well for the church. And because we care well about the church, we're continuing to invest in men who will eventually become elders and I said it last week, I want to challenge again this week, maybe some of you who have never considered yourself elder material, 
Maybe, maybe it's time to, to ask God whether you should consider. Maybe you should aspire. Maybe not. God doesn't call everyone to be an elder, but he calls everyone to be qualified. So follow after Christ. He's good. He loves you. He's worth it. He's your father who wants you and desires you. I'm going to be at the back. We're going to continue to, to worship. We're going to sing another song. And if you've got questions about following after Christ, if you've got questions about loving God more than loving your sin, I'm going to be just between those double doors. And the reason I go back there is because um, I don't, you may, if you've been in church, you may have seen kind of a traditional, everybody comes to the altar. I think sometimes that limits because then the time frame is basically how long the song is. <laughs> so if you want to talk, I go to the back so that we don't have a time frame. We can go outside and talk. We can go to another room and talk. Um, let's talk. It's, it's eternally important to you to understand why God wants you for himself and why in wanting you for himself, he calls you to holiness and righteousness and discipline and good doctrine. Let me pray for you. Father, we are thankful for your word, that it is good, that it is trustworthy, that we will never be let down by your word. And we thank you that your word teaches us what we need to be a church in order. God, we know that you love order, that you are not a God of chaos. God, we want to be a church of order. We want to be a church with qualified elders leading and loving your church. God, we want to be a a church who loves the church. (laughs) To not take for granted how important the church is to you. God, that you have purchased us, that you have purchased your church with your blood. That the church is your bride. God, I pray that more would be added to your number. More would be added to your family. God, if there's some here today, some listening online who don't know you, who are trying to understand why, why, why I follow after God. God. I pray that you would help them understand that you, through the work of your spirit, would enlighten them, that they would see the truth, that they would know the truth, and God, they would turn to you. I pray that you give them boldness and courage, that they would proclaim that loudly. I pray that for every believer here, God, that they would proclaim your truth boldly. God, we love you. We thank you for what you've done for us in your life and death and resurrection. We praise you that you're coming again soon. We praise in your name. Amen.